the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. We are thrilled to be joined by a friend of the show, Dr. Karen Swallow-Pryor. She earned her Ph.D. in English at the State University of New York at Buffalo. She is a writer. She's a speaker. She's a columnist for Religion News Service. She's written all over the place, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Christianity Today. You hear Brian and I unpack her articles quite a bit. She has a new book that came out recently, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Super excited to talk to her about that. Karen, thanks for coming back on The Common Good. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we love having you. All right, big picture for our listeners who may not know about your book yet, Karen. What is The Evangelical Imagination? Well, of course, I do talk about the imagination in the book and what it means for us to be made in God's image and to have imaginations as a way that reflects his nature in us. But what I'm really talking about is something called the social imaginary, which is what philosophers call our sort of collective pool of stories and images and myths and legends and dreams and hopes that we have and that we actually inherit just from being part of a social community. Mm. And so what I try to do is to unpack um, what evangelicalism has had for its 300-year history as some of those sort of unexamined assumptions and stories and images and metaphors. Oh, fascinating. What would one or two of yeah. those be? Can maybe give us an example for people to cling on to. Yeah, so fortunately in the book, each chapter is devoted mm-hmm. to one of those that nice. I identify. So, so one of the early chapters is conversion, because conversion is actually one of the principles or the doctrines that evangelicalism grew up around in the 18th century. And of course, I, you know, if you're a Christian, you believe that in conversion, that sure, we have to sure, be converted right. to Christ. But in, in the context of the 18th century, um, conversion had been sort of forgotten because there was the existence of a state church. And so if you were born into this country, you were a member of the church, and there was no emphasis on being born again or, you know, having that sort of conversion experience. And so evangelicals revived that, and we still have that today. I mean, if you're an evangelical, you know, you emphasize being born again, and Mm -hmm. we like to have altar calls and fill out, you know, cards and and do those sorts of things, which there's nothing wrong with that. But if we overemphasize it or don't realize it, we can end up neglecting discipleship and Mm -hmm. spiritual growth and those things. And Karen, one of the things that uh, if you just open up and read about your book, it says contemporary American evangelicalism is suffering from an identity crisis and a lot of bad press. I love that (laughs) opening line because it's so true and it's so powerful. Talk to us about that concept and how that relates to images, metaphors, stories. Like, How did that create a culture in crisis? Yeah, no, that's such a great question, because that actually, that's sort of what prompted the book, one Mm -hmm. of the things. 
Um, because we ha- are hearing the word, you know, since around, say, 2016, <laughs> we've been hearing the word evangelical in the news, in, you know, in the media. Mm. Uh, it's been become kind of a political term, a sociological term, a survey question. And people are either identifying as that or we're being identified as that by other people or mm. people are rejecting the term yeah. or they're saying this is not what it is. And I'm just, you know, I do spend part of the book saying, as I said before, this is a three a movement that is 300 years old. Here's how it started. Here is how the term has been used. And yes, the definition may be changing, but that's what we have to look at. We have to look at how we got here before we can actually decide where we want to go. Mm. Yeah, that's good. And that phrase, a culture in crisis, is unpack that some more. Help people understand what's the <laughs> crisis we're talking about. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I I do think the first sort of surface level crisis is the one that I just talked about. You don't even know what the term means or whether it's still, you know, meaningful or we still like it. And so that's one crisis. But I do think I mean, I, I, I don't. I think everyone who's part of evangelicalism or even just the broader church would agree that we are in a moment that is very polarized and fractured and divisive. It is a crisis. And, you know, it, it, And again, there are many things that contributed to it. And my focusing on sort of the imaginary part, the imagination and the works of of culture and imagination, that's just one part of it. But I think it's a part that we haven't really looked at at all. Hmm. Okay, so I know you talked about conversion and I don't want you to spoil all the book, but give us another (laughs) another little image that uh, that Christians. In fact, the cover is fascinating to me, Karen, because you've got this. (laughs) It looks like a very sort of white pastoral Jesus. There's a halo. There's a uh, just unpack this. I don't want to ruin it for people, but I want you to talk to us about it. Yeah, no, that's actually that's a good um, segue. So that. Uh, image on the cover is inspired um, by my chapter on sentimentality. Mm. Uh, that sentimentality is, you know, it's not an image necessarily, it's an idea, it's, it's a focus on emotions, but what it results in is, well, a lot of things, but one thing is that that kind of image of Jesus that, that painting on the front portrays, which is Jesus that looks like white evangelicals yeah. Um, yeah. when in fact Jesus was not that and also looks peaceful and comforting um, and the whole painting is is just very soothing and comforting um, and we have lots of art out there that is like that whether it's that you know paintings or worship music um, that tends to comfort us in our emotions emotional state, mm-hmm. whatever emotion we are, you know, we, we happen to want. And so that's actually, I think, a danger um, for us as Christians as a danger. It, it, it can create bad art and bad art can create, can de- deform our imaginations. Mm. And so that's a whole chapter that I, that I spend talking about that particular error in art, which is sentimentality. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Wow. Karen, you said, uh, as we were preparing for this, you said this didn't start out this way, but this has become increasingly your personal story. Mm. Uh, that's not why you wrote this book, uh, but it has become it. Uh, tell us more about that. How has this become your personal story? Mm. Well, one of the things I do write about in the introduction is how this book was initially inspired by 
teaching Victorian literature in mm. evangelical classrooms. And a lot of times what we would be talking about in, in the Victorian literature from the 19th century, many of my students who grew up in evangelical subculture would say, well, that's what I was taught when I was growing up, or this sounds like what I hear in my church. And so we would stop, and and I did not. I grew up in a Christian home, but I I didn't grow up in that sort of subculture that emphasized the the, the conferences and the books and the purity culture and the this and the that. I mean, we were just sort of basic Christians, and so these things were kind of unfamiliar to me. And so I would stop and and have wonderful discussions with my students. And say, okay, so let's look at this idea. Let's mm. look at this image. And is it really biblical or is it just Victorian? And that is kind of the root of the book. But as I was writing and becoming myself at a later stage in life, more immersed in this evangelical subculture that I didn't grow up in, I was I was becoming formed and shaped by it in ways that I really mm. didn't recognize and um, wow. and and so it became personal for me in that respect. Okay, one of the things you you barely touched on was you began to ask yourself some questions like what I speaking of the imagination or what you'd inherited uh, this question of like, is it biblical or is it Victorian? And I was kind of laughing and I told you off air. I was like, I have to talk to you about this because I've been in my head about some of that stuff, too, Karen. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious, maybe one for the listener who has no idea what we're talking about. Would you unpack what you mean by even that question? Is it biblical or is it Victorian? And then I and then I want to just have a conversation about it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the chapters that's in the middle of the book, but was one of the first ones I knew I was going to write because it emerged directly from that set of questions is one on domesticity. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, evangelicalism arose in the 18th century, grew in you know greater significance and influence through the 19th century, and really helped form what we now call the Victorian age. But also the Industrial Revolution was happening at that time. So a lot was changing. And those two things kind of melted together Mm. and resulted in a context in which it was possible for a man to make enough money outside the home so that his wife didn't have to work. And so that developed something called the separate spheres, where the woman remains in the private realm and the man has a public Face uh, and comes home where he receives comfort and solace from his wife in the private sphere. And and women, it was con- considered a sign of success and 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 good character if a wife didn't have to work. And yeah. so that idea, we see this again in America in the 1950s, following World War II, where the woman staying home and being comfortable and being a homemaker. Well, the, the, that ideal is one of a very specific time, the Victorian age, and then later the ni- in 1950s in America. Hmm. Um, and a lot of people have been raised to think that that's actually a, a biblical yep. idea yep. when in fact it isn't. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. Victorian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I am so glad now you need to write your next book just on that. <laughs> Cause I do think there's so much untangling, but I, I, I appreciate that. I'm so glad you're talking about that a little bit in your book and kind of going, is it biblical or is it actually something else we've assumed is biblical? Okay. I know Brian asked you this, but you did say this, be- this began to be more of a personal process. Were you surprised by that as you were writing? Is it something that God has done since you finished it? Like what was that journey like for you? 
Yeah, well, of course, it takes a long time, or at least it takes a long time for me to write a book mm-hmm. and get through all the editing stages till it's finally published. So this, you know, this is a process that took place over several years. And there is a, a chapter in the book where I, I talk about Reformation. Um, and of course, I'm talking about the Protestant Reformation, but also how I think we are in a similar moment where mm. we need another a new reformation because the crisis is that severe. And so one of the things that I talk about, that there's a line in there where I write that, you know, we are in a place where we're, we're going to have to examine whether or not we are willing to give up position and privilege and platform and pay and comfort and ease in order to follow Jesus. Hmm. And to be completely honest, I think I put this in a footnote or an end note, like, I was thinking about other people. <laughs> I was like, you people, you need to be willing to give up. This <laughs> you know, kind of like all the sermons are for everybody else. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but by the time I was writing this book, I felt, you know, in my own life as a sort of professional Christian, if you want to put it that way, um, I had to see, I had to choose, I, I, you know, I was put in a place where I believe I had to choose complete faith and surrender in Jesus mm. um, or my position and pay and platform and so forth. Wow. And it was, it was not an easy decision. And wow. I, and I, I hope and pray that I chose Jesus, because I I did give up some of those things. Yeah. So. Wow, Karen. I'd love to dive into that just a little bit more, because uh, we've talked about this on the show. There's certain of you, you're one of them on places, especially like Twitter, but other places who um, who have taken lots of arrows. Let's just put it that way. Mm. You have taken lots of shots. <laughs> and I guess I just wonder how that's been for you. Like, how has your faith continued or grown or even how have you persevered? What have you done to Mm. kind of navigate that? Help us just understand all that the last year, two, three years have been for you. Yeah. So of course that's something, you know, I'm still processing, but it has been going on for a long time. Mm -hmm. It certainly has not. I mean, my faith in Jesus through all these hard times has only grown stronger. I see my need for him more dearly and our, all of our need for him. Um, you know, my I will say that my um, trust in institutions and authorities, including the church, has has weakened and diminished. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also I have to ask myself, was I being too naive? Was I being too blind? Was I ignoring red flags? Because, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously there no institutions are perfect. The church is not perfect. And but I do think this is, goes back to the point about Reformation. I do think we have erred as sort of like in the over the past century or so in American evangelicalism, we have erred in putting too much into too much trust and faith and, Mm. and stock in institutions and authorities and, and so forth. And we are, you know, we are paying the price for that, but it's God revealing what's been underneath the surface probably for a long time. And that's, mm. that's a hard thing, but it's also a great mercy. Mm. Wow. We just have to keep clinging to him and mm. let him, you know, help us get through this crisis. Oh, such a good word. Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor is the author of many things, including a book we've been talking about, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis. Karen, where can our people find and follow you, and where can they order this book? Well, they can order the book at any any bookseller. I, I think it's carried 
anywhere, you know, at least online and in a lot of bookstores. Um, I have a website, KarenSwallowPrior.com, where you get basic information, most of the social media platforms. But what I, I would love for people to come and find me in my newest project, which is a free um, weekly newsletter at Substack. Nice. I'm teaching literature, I'm teaching literature there, and it, we're having lively conversations. It's really, uh, it's been wonderful. Ooh, so I hope that's people will find so me fun. I'm going to go in your Substack right now. I love that. <laughs> um, Karen, thanks so much for being here. We always love having you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.